This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. All right, David Fontenot here with Hunt Quietly, and uh, we're today we're talking to Christian Hagen of the South Dakota Youth Hunting Adventures, and. I got that right this time. It's the second time we're recording this intro, just so everybody knows. I said association before, so. <laughs> and, and, common mistake. Yeah, just in the interest of transparency. How are you doing today, Christian? I'm doing awesome. It is a beautiful day here in Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, we got plenty of moisture. The sun is shining, and we just wrapped up our seventh annual wildlife banquet. This past weekend very cool so wildlife banquet is this predominantly to benefit um your uh your group or is this for other purposes um so it's for other purposes as well as our group um so we split it 50 50 uh we keep 50 percent of what we raise and the other 50 percent we put into a grant or we make that money available for other conservation projects uh shooting sport projects um kind of whatever um you know outdoor projects needs there are in the local community um you know we've never said no to anybody yet um so it's, it's kind of for a little bit of everything it's a really cool banquet very cool very nice so for the uh the people listening can you just tell us a little bit about uh south dakota youth hunting adventures yeah absolutely so we are a 501c3 nonprofit here in rapid city south dakota and what makes us really unique is we are a youth mentoring and hunting nonprofit. Uh, so what we do is we take kids who want to hunt, fish, get outside, and we match them with a qualified experienced mentor um, to kind of serve as like their guide, their teacher, um, and obviously their mentor. Very cool. What, what kind of like age ranges are we talking about here? Yeah, so we serve kids ages 12 to 17. They can join the program at 11, as long as they turn 12 by the end of the calendar year. And then at 18, uh, we graduate them from the program. Very interesting. And so these kids that you guys work with, I mean, are these kids who just come from like non-hunting families that really want to hunt? Or what's kind of like the, is there like a typical uh, profile, shall we say, of these kids? You know, not really. Um, kind of the, the common denominator with all of our kids is they don't have an opportunity to hunt and fish. Um, and that could be for a number of reasons. Um, you know, they might have just moved here. They're not familiar with the area of the state. Um, there's some socioeconomic barriers there when it comes to hunting. Um, you know, I think 70% of the families we serve are right at that poverty line or below. Um, and then there's kids that you know, parents don't hunt, grandparents don't hunt. Um, and for whatever reason, they become interested and they need somebody to kind of, you know, guide them along, teach them what to do. Um, you know, and we also have kids who have maybe lost that person in their life. Um, that, that was their hunting or fishing buddy as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we kind of, we have, I mean, we get, we get people from all different kinds of backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses. I mean, we, we, we try to serve everybody, but that, that common denominator is they want to hunt, they want to fish, but they just don't have the opportunity to do so. That's really interesting. I would not have guessed the 
socioeconomic barriers as much just i just associate hunting so much with the familial connection for the most part that you i just would have guessed that this was situations where like say maybe they lost that person or just you know like a one-off wild child who just really wants to get out there and hunt even though their parents have never shown any interest or done anything like that which is like it's kind of like my story from when i was a kid um but never ended up hunting until december of 2018 so um i was missing that that youth hunting adventures group in virginia for sure yeah Um, yeah and we'll i mean i'm sure we'll get into it but we'll talk about i mean the impact this program has on kids' education, their social well-being, um, and then also food. Food is a big one, and the meals provided in this program—it's it's gonna blow your mind. Oh, hit hit me with it! I'm ready. I want to. Like, I honestly, I know so little about this kind of dynamic like group, or and I've never heard of anyone really doing anything like this. Um, I'm sure there's other states that have programs like this, but just like, yeah, lay it on me. I, w- I want to hear everything you have to say. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and so as far as I know, there's not any other groups like us. Um, this is pretty unique. Um, if there's somebody listening, maybe from another state who has something like this going on, um, you know, please reach out to me. Um, you know, I'd love to talk, share idea, ideas, resources, collaborate. Um, there, there is one program. It's called Fathers in the Field. Um, that's that's kind of similar to what we do. Um, they're a little bit different. Um, but they're they're a really cool organization too. So if you have time to look them up, I I would recommend doing so. Um, but yeah, I got my my PowerPoint and all my stats and numbers here. Um, I love a good kind of to kind of give you. Um, so I mean, there's just so much, and I I might ramble, but it's just such a unique thing that we do. There there's so much that I want to try to squeeze into this podcast. For sure. Can you send me this PowerPoint too when we're done with this? And maybe we can share a little bit of on the Hunkwile Instagram. Just shameless plug for the guy who's got to come up with the content for the Instagram. Yeah, yeah, perfect. No, that'd be awesome. Um, right. So I'm just going to start at the beginning of this PowerPoint. Um, so last year, in the year of 2022, we served 82 kids and families in the Rapid City area. Better click on. All right, here we go. Um, so, so far this year, uh, we've served 66 kids, um, so far this year, and I'm hoping, hoping we can break 70 before the end of summer. Um, summer's kind of our busy time where we have people signing up for the program. Um, but right now we're at 56 active matches as of today, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but we just had our biggest graduating class ever. We had 17 kids graduate the program this past month. But um, you know, our program, it doesn't cost the families, the kids, a single dime. We we cover the cost of everything. Um, so gear, boots, jackets, bibs. Um, we provide meat processing certificates um, if, if they choose to go to a processor to get their their animals processed. Um, you know, a lot of them just do it with their mentor um, because it's such a good skill to learn. Um, but sometimes, you know, things get busy or whatever, um, you know, or, or they want to get it processed for whatever reason. Um, we cover the cost of all that. You know, we have firearms that the mentors can check out for the kids. You know, we provide the ammunition. We provide the land. Um, we have a lot of really cool landowners we get to work with, um, you know, that maybe have an overabundance of deer, antelope, turkeys, whatever it may be. Um, and they exclusively allow our kids to come out and hunt. 
Um, and mentors, you know, obviously they cover the cost of transportation. Um, so for the kids and families, all they really have to do is buy the $5 dough tag um, or whatever tag kid wants to apply for and, and that's all it costs them mm -hmm. where, where does all the the money for this come from besides the uh the banquet you were telling me about yep so we have our banquet we have the black hill sport show um it's a big sport show that our organization puts on and runs um every february every yeah february 10th and 12th of this past year so it's a big weekend um lots of vendors and then we also do a big live and silent auction there as well um we get donations from some really cool organizations um buckstorm is kind of like a local hunting media group they kind of do like youtube stuff like that um great group of guys um but every year they do this thing called the shed drive where you can donate your sheds to them and they go and sell them and 100 percent of the proceeds raised they donate to our program Mm, so right. yeah so if you needed a reason to get out and walk around in the woods or if your wife or significant others telling you to get rid of the pile of sheds in the garage mm -hmm. um it's kind of the perfect uh fundraiser for it um and then black hills mountain lion hunters um is a small um kind of mountain lion hunting conservation group here in the black hills and they also give us 100 percent of the proceeds of their annual banquet that they put on Wow. And, and there's a, there's a small grant that we get from South Dakota Game Fishing Parks each year, um, and we we just have so many wonderful donors um, that also just donate time, money, effort, your equipment to our program to make it possible for what we do. Got it. And you said these experiences they're going on; these are on all, pretty much exclusively private land with these landowners that you guys work with. Um, not all of them, some of them, I'd, I'd say a pretty good chunk. Um, it's yeah. kind of up to the mentor, uh, where, where he's going to take the mentee hunting. Um, sure. so, you know, they might have their own private land. They might have a favorite public land spot. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. it's kind of up to them, but it, it seems like there's never a shortage of landowners, um, that have too many does and, you know, right. they don't have people coming to hunt them, you know, for whatever reason, maybe people just don't want to hunt that property they don't want to shoot a doe um but it makes an incredible opportunity for our kids to have have a, a really great place to hunt with a high chance of success yeah well it's a really nice way to capture on like potential management needs with like excess white-tailed doe population or anything like that and yep, yeah, i asked because it's interesting because in my um hunting experience so my first ever hunt my brother and i went with a guide in north carolina went duck hunting and you know we hit we shot like five ducks each in four hours or whatever and it was like kind of we were kind of like oh okay like this is cool um but i never i felt like i really never knew what hunting actually was like until i actually struck out on my own mm. so, like i wonder like how many of these kids after those experiences maybe like graduate and go out on their own for the first time and come back and say like, Oh, geez, man, like this wasn't nearly as much fun. <laughs> like I like public land is hard. Or I like had, you know, I had to like, had a, there was a sea of orange or the parking lot was full. I had a hard time finding a spot, you know, like do you guys have that experience? Oh, sorry. I got the, my dogs climbing to my lap here. Um, do you have that experience at all? Or the, the kids, like, does the mentorship really teach them enough to kind of like get out on their own and start to have at least feel like they're on the path of success 
Yes, that's a great question. So that that's something um, I've been asked before, you know, because if we provide the kids all these really great opportunities, and they're not always necessarily a slam dunk, but they're pretty close, right. you know, what happens when they get out on their own? Um, we haven't really ran into that, you know, because by the time they graduate our program, our goal is that they're not just ready to hunt and fish, but they're ready for life. And they have very clear expectations um, and, and the knowledge to move forward. Um, you know, public, public land hunting ethics is a big one when I interview mentors, um, because I want to make sure that they know what's right, what's wrong, what's expected of them, what's realistic. And when they go and mentor that kid, they're able to kind of pass on that information and that knowledge that they have. So, yeah, and I can actually tell you how many kids go on to purchase hunting, fishing licenses after they graduate. And it's about 22% of our kids. Um, Pretty good. Hunting. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I didn't think it was a super good number until uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife said, you know, programs like this, if they hit 8 to 10%, they consider that really good. And we're at 22% of our kids um, go on to buy a hunting or fishing license after they graduate. And so after they graduate, I mean, I assume socioeconomic status doesn't magically change for some of those kids. So I have to imagine some percentage of them too are just not, maybe not there yet as well, like possibly don't have the means after the program. Yep, absolutely. So, so that's one factor, um, you know, some, sometimes and it's unfortunate, um, you know, they get out of our program and, you know, they don't have the money for a rifle or a truck or to be able to drive and, and, you know, do, you know, do all this, this stuff that was being provided for them before. Um, you know, and then we just have some kids that, you know, do it and then they just kind of grow out of it. They don't like hunting or fishing. Um, it's just not their thing. And that's totally fine because even if they're not hunting and fishing, they're still, um, a great advocate for wild things and wild places. Yeah. And for hunting in general, I mean, assuming they like they had a good experience, but just it wasn't for them. That's 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 the exactly the kind of the kind of perspective I feel like you we would want to instill in the non hunting public was to, like to understand that experience in a more from like the actual point of view of a hunter versus from like the outside point of view or from watching a TV show or what you see in social media. It's like the best advocate you could ask for. And I have yeah. to imagine some of those kids you know, we'll maybe acquire those means eventually and then come back to it. It'll be like something that they, you know, maybe 25, 26, they, they say, you know, I've got a little money now. Yeah. I want, I want to go back to hunting. Uh, I remember how much I enjoyed that. Yep. Absolutely. And there's one, one guy I can think of offhand, you know, he was a mentee in the program and graduated and, you know, he didn't, didn't have the financial means to, to hunt or fish or anything like that and took a few years off and, as soon as he got, you know, like his first adult, adult job, you know, he got back into it. And That's now awesome. he's a hunting and fishing fool. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's super cool. All right. So sorry, I kind of derailed us there, but I just got to, it's been a long day. So I got to interject a little bit to stay awake and explore some of these things. So, um, oh, yeah. no, it's totally fine. I mean, there, and there's, there's so much to talk about. Um, I'll be surprised if we get it all in on this podcast. I just get so enthusiastic that, I mean, there's just so many things I want to tell people about because it's so cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, the but, listener might not be able to tell by your voice. You have a very level voice, but I can see the smile on your face when you start <laughs> talking about this stuff. It's really like, it's quite evident that you like, you really like your heart is in this like a hundred percent. 
Oh yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, I'm super grateful to be where I'm at. Um, but yeah, talking about food. Um, so I crunched the numbers um, and, and just kind of got a rough estimate between the number of processing certificates we gave out and the number of animals that I know that the mentors and mentees process themselves, along with, you know, an estimate of fish that were caught and birds that were harvested, and that's upland and waterfowl. Um, in eight ounce servings, in eight ounce servings, um, our program provided 3,920 servings of wild game meat last year. Wow. So that's almost 4,000 servings of wild game. That's a lot. Yeah. So, you, and you think of it, you know, social in the, in the socioeconomic kind of world, um, you know, you go to food banks um, or, or if a family is receiving EBT or SNAP benefits, um, a lot of, a lot of the, the foods in those diets, that demographic are usually not healthier foods. Um, but with our program, I mean, they're getting the highest quality, most nutritious protein on the planet, mm -hmm. um, you know, where they wouldn't really be able to get it anywhere else. Um, so in just, you know, looking at it from a food perspective and meals, I mean, it's feeding a lot of people, a lot of families. And that's what I get really excited about because yeah. you got these kids that, um, you know, are, are, are feeding their families, you know, and, and to be like a, a young kid and doing that, I mean, it's just, it's kind of cool and it gives them a sense of pride and accomplishment. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, deer, elk, pheasant, grouse, I mean, it's all delicious stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. I can't imagine, especially like a kid who has some kind of awareness maybe of that food is a struggle for their family. If they're on EBT snap, like you said, or anything like that to, to put that in, that must be like amazing. Like I can't imagine how that must feel for that kid. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I like, I like talking about the food portion of it. Um, and we're actually going to try to do some cooking classes this summer. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with just, you know, making a little chislick in a pan or, or whatever, throwing it on the grill, but we want to do some cooking classes, really um, equip these kids even a little bit more for life by, you know, kind of teaching them how to navigate a, t a kitchen and safety and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask like, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of burger get and sausage gets made and, and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but yeah, the cooking side, definitely that can be a struggle at first. Oh yeah, definitely. But yeah, we're providing a lot of meals for these kids. And I, and I don't really want to say we are because I mean, the kids are the ones going out and harvesting these animals, but we like to be able to facilitate it you know, to where they have the possibility to do so. For sure. I mean, you're making it possible for them 100%. You, you're not pulling the trigger for them, but you're putting them in a position to have that experience and and bring that home for their family, which is, I mean, obviously a lot of credit is due there to you guys as well. Yeah. So it's just, it's awesome. It makes you feel really good at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that's just the little, little tidbit. I like, I always like throwing the food thing in there. Um, I'm looking at, you know, kind of like our, uh, our statistics, demographics, um, you know, we're about 90% male, 10% female in our program, but, um, we're getting a lot more girls applying to be in the program, which I think is awesome. Um, and so right now we're really trying to recruit more female mentors, um, 
you know, which, which can be a struggle. Um, but I feel like the female demographic in the outdoor world is growing. So I'm hoping kind of our, our mentor recruitment base grows with that. Does the interest um, from uh, young females outweigh the number of female mentors you, you can source right now? Always. Yeah. We usually, we usually have at least two or three girls waiting for a mentor. Um, they're, they're kind of in a pool that we call ready to be matched. Um, you know, and a kid can sit in that pool for a day. Um, they can sit in it for six months. It just is a matter of time before we have that next female mentor applied to the program. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And is, is there a reason why you, you choose not to match them with male mentors? It's just kind of like preference or yep so with our our program policies and procedures you know child safety is always going to be number one in making sure the child is comfortable um, for sure you know and if you look at any other mentoring organizations it's just kind of a standard where males that get makes matched, sense females, yeah females get matched females um however you know um sometimes we'll do a family match um so we kind of have a sub program within our program called outdoor family traditions and sometimes we'll have an entire family um, that wants to be mentored by a hunter. And so this way, the parent, the parents, the guardian, guardians, and the kids get to kind of learn together from a oh, mentor. Okay. Yeah. So that, that would kind of be the only case where, you know, maybe we have a male mentor get matched with like a mom and a kid. Right. Like yeah. Oh, it's just such a bummer to think of like a, a, a young girl who wants to get out there and just because the hunting industry has been so male dominated, it's just a struggle to find them that person. That's really unfortunate. Yep. It, it gets to be a little bit of a struggle, but, um, I don't know. We got, we got some real good prospects that have just applied recently. So, um, everything goes good. Um, I'm hopefully going to be making, uh, two female matches here in the next month or so. Awesome. That's good to hear. Well, if anyone's listening to this and they know, any hunting fools in, in South Dakota that happen to be female, you know where to send them. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and one thing that this, this kind of, this has been told to me more than once uh, by our female mentors is they maybe don't feel qualified enough or experienced enough, um, to be able to mentor a kid. And, you know, that kind of makes them uncomfortable. If you want to mentor, you know, with your husband or you want to mentor with your boyfriend, or if you want to mentor with your friend or two friends, um, co-mentoring is always an option in our program. So instead of you just being matched one-on-one -on -one with the kid, um, maybe you, a friend, boyfriend, husband, or whoever could also be matched with the kid. So that way you have somebody to kind of mentor with. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always fun and it, and it makes them feel a little bit more comfortable. So, Got it. so no excuses. That's essentially what we're reading between the lines, <laughs> ladies. Yeah. And so that's why I tell everybody, um, you know, in a perfect world, everybody would be a mentor, right? Yeah. yeah. You know? So everybody has an excuse, time, work, um, whatever it may be. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's making it a priority for, for these kids in the community and, and for the future of hunting and for the future of the kids, which is really cliche. But yeah. Yeah, I think if we all dig deep, we we can find the time. Definitely, for sure. Yeah, and especially, I mean, if you truly believe that we need to secure the future of hunting by bringing in new hunters, what better way than through this? I mean, I you know when I got into hunting, I went through all kinds of 
hunter education things on nonprofit websites and like the whole like, and I got very, very little out of it. I mean, I ended up just by sheer force of will throwing myself into the field and eventually like kind of starting to figure things out a little bit, um, which was an extraordinarily painful process, especially when I was watching a lot of hunting TV and seeing all the success and being like, what is wrong with me? Like, am I, am I just that bad? Am I that much of an idiot? In some cases I was, and in some cases I just, you know, just didn't know it comes with experience, but, um, you know, that mentorship opportunity, I think is so pivotal in really learning like ethics and how to respect landowners and the land. And, you know, I could very easily see how someone who maybe doesn't have the same, um, morals or values that I have could get into hunting and, and through the lens of YouTube and social media, get a much very different impression of what's okay and what they should be doing. Um, and end up being more in line of what we might call like a bad actor, somebody who's, you know, going to shoot a mule deer on private property, you know, driving by in, in Montana or whatever it might be. Um, but I feel like something about that almost familial passing down of knowledge, I feel like really instills things in people in a different way. If that yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you scroll on social media or YouTube, um, you'll, you'll definitely see a lot of bad examples, right? Um, you guys have talked about this before, um, you know, and looking at it from like a, like an R3 perspective, um, you know, we've been told, you know, well, you're just an R3 program. Well, I mean, not really. I mean, we, we do recruit some hunters, but that's not, I mean, that's a very, very, very small part of our program. Um, and so what I've told people is the kids graduating our program, those are going to be the people you want to run into on public land. Mm -hmm. um, those are the people you're going to want to share the field with um, because we push the public land ethics, private land ethics, um, you know, habitat access and landowner relations so much in our program that when when these kids graduate, I mean, they know what to do and they know what's right um so so we don't i mean you look at it do we need more hunters or we do do we need better hunters um maybe a little bit of both more more better hunters out there um and mm -hmm. you know i hope hope the kids you know that that's what we want to do with our program yeah well if anybody were to say you were an r3 program i mean i would laugh because i think there's a ma massive difference between recruitment and mentorship recruitment yes. is just getting someone in the door and be like, Hey, you want to do this? Like sign up, pay $10 to, you know, this nonprofit every year. Like, woohoo, here's like a camo duffel bag, like go get them. And here's a bunch of articles. Um, but how many people really have like, you know, really put up and, and take time out of their own hunting season to go help somebody else be successful. I mean, these guys on Instagram who are shooting six bull elk a year, like, Maybe they take one person out that year and they film it. So it's like, you know, a feel good content thing that serves them too. But I don't know how many of these people are, are, you know, behind closed doors, taking out somebody who doesn't have the means by themselves, who's like, isn't a name or didn't win a giveaway that they were doing through a, some kind of promotional deal. You know, this, they, they all have self-serving aspects in that respect. But at the end of the day, if you, 
if that's really what you believe, you know, mentorship is is the way to do it. There's, I mean, in my opinion, there's you're if you're if you truly believe in recruitment, then you should believe in mentorship, and you should be willing to take someone to where you hunt or find help them find somewhere where they can be successful, at the very least, um, you know. But if you're not willing to give up a, a honey hole for a new hunter, then what do you what do you really stand for in that respect? Right, exactly. Yeah, and even even like in our pamphlet and our website, um, kind of one of our slogans is you know mentoring is the key to success. Um, you know, a lot of these kids, um, you know, talking kind of demographics, a lot of them come from single parent families. Um, you know, and especially for the young the young boys in our program, they don't have a positive adult male role model in their lives. Um, you know, which I mean, we're we're seeing stuff all the time of these studies coming out, how important a fatherly figure is, or even just a male role model is in, in the life and the development of young men. Um, so, you know, they're getting the mentoring and the hunting in the outdoors, you know, they're learning hunter safety, they're, they're learning all the ethics, everything they need to know, but they're also learning how to be a young man at the same time. Um, they're getting that attention um, that they need from a positive adult male role model, which I mean, it, I can't, I can't emphasize how important that is for these kids. Um, and that, that just doesn't serve the outdoors, but that's every aspect of life, mm-hmm. you know, how they, how they treat other people, what their work ethic is like, how well they do in school. Um, I mean, it just pays huge dividends. Yeah. Yeah. And you said you had some, some information kind of on how that pans into like education and other parts of their life. I mean, like, are you, yeah, absolutely. Um, so with our program, we're, we're really big on the academics. Um, hunting, fishing, it's fun. But if you're not doing well in school, oh, no. So so in the match agreement, so we kind of have, so when, when we do a match meeting, when we get a mentor match with a mentee and they get to meet each other, um, you know, we have paperwork that they got to do. But there's a mentee match agreement, you know, and it's like 15, 16 things that they agree that they're going to do. Um, one of those things is doing well in school. And we kind of tell them, you know, you know, this program is great. You're going to have incredible opportunities, but at the same time, hunting and fishing is a privilege. And to be in our program, you got to be doing well in school and you got to be a good role model for your peers. Um, and for a lot of kids, a lot of kids, that is the motivation they need because they go out hunting or fishing. And all of a sudden that is their thing, man. Like they have discovered this, this, just wild adventure and they love it and now they have a reason to do good in school whereas maybe before you know they didn't um you know and a lot of these these socioeconomic things are cyclic and by introducing them into something that they have a passion for and appreciation for um it's it's that thing that really kind of changes their lives and their outlook on their life um you know and like I tell my mentee, like, you know, we got it. We got kind of a grading scale. I'm like, okay, if you can get, you can get an A, A average, get to hunt an antelope, you know, B's, B's are for bucks, you know, C's, um, C's, you know, we'll go out hunting, fishing, all that stuff. Um, you don't get to shoot a buck. D's are for does. Um, you know, we'll do our doe hunt, you know, hang out, we'll do all that stuff. Um, and that's kind of it. And then my mentee asked me, he's like, He's like, well, what does F stand for? And I said, buddy, I said, F stands for freezers empty. <laughs> like if you're not doing well in school, I was like, 
you know, we'll go play catch at the park. We'll go for a walk, listen to music, talk about our feelings. But if you're not, if you're not passing school, I was like, we're not hunting and fishing until those grades come up. So it's a little bit of tough love, but you know, it's, you know, it really motivates the kids to do well. So he's, is he getting that pronghorn or what are we, what, what, what are we seeing? Not yet, man. We're going to, we're going to see how, uh, we're going to see how summer school goes, but, yeah. um, his, his new thing, I took him fly fishing a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and this kid's been kind of a spin fisherman his whole life. Make, makes fun of me for fly fishing and all this and that and took him fly fishing and he is, and this is a pun intended. He's hooked now. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. All he wants to do. That's um, yeah. So I told them, you know, you know, keep those grades up, keep doing well. Um, you know, we'll do, we'll do a lot of fishing and then, you know, we'll get, we'll take the summer semester, get ready for the fall. Um, see kind of how things pan out, but I mean, it'll, it'll kind of be up to him. So, so how often in a year are these, are these mentors taking out their mentees? So that's a great question. So it depends, um, with our program, we don't have like a minimum standard or requirement for, um, activity levels um so whatever the mentor is willing to kind of dedicate um we try to match them with a kid who's kind of in the same ballpark um so you know on on one end of the spectrum we have matches that get together and then this is just a handful they get together for the shooting day they get their gear package they get their processing certificate they shoot their dough they don't see each other till the next year just just a few. And then on the opposite end, we have matches that get together almost every week, every other week to do something, even if it's not hunting or fishing related, um, because you just build that bond and that relationship. Um, you know, so if it if it's going out for breakfast or doing homework, um, catching a baseball game, whatever it may be, um, they're getting out. But on on average, most of our matches get together at least once a month or every other month. And then September through December, um, you know, getting together a little bit more um, for the hunting seasons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we kind of, I mean, it's kind of all over the place, um, you know, and we kind of do that because we don't want somebody to not mentor because they can't, you know, dedicate X amount of time per month, if that makes sense. Yeah. We try to make accommodating to get, to get people in. Um, you know, and, and not make that be an issue to where they're going to disqualify themselves before they even apply. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And the, and the willingness of each kid to commit X amount of time or ability, you know, obviously it's good to have that match too, for sure. That's awesome. That's really interesting. Yep. So yeah, when we match them, um, you know, we, we try to match them as close as we can on, you know, amount of time they want to get together. And then, you know, personalities, characteristics, you know, stuff like that, um, you know, which works a lot of the time. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't work. We just don't have a lot of mentors applying and we got a lot of kids waiting. You're not going to get like the perfect match, but we try to get it as close as possible within reason. Mm -hmm. Is there like a, a common trend you see amongst mentors, like the types of people that are mentoring? Because it just strikes me as, I mean, especially people who don't have kids that with recruitment being such a big topic, I would think there'd just be so much more of this. I, assu- I honestly, going into this, I assumed that there was, I assumed that I didn't like do any research, which oh, shame on me. 
but I, I just, I just assumed there would be more like mentorship programs like these in other states. It just seems like such an obvious thing to do if you really care about recruitment and, and hunting. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess I just, I guess I don't have an answer, you know, and like I said, we're pretty unique and I don't really know of any other programs or organizations other than, you know, fathers in the field, which is similar, but not exactly what we do. Um, there's also project mayfly, which is kind of like a fly fishing mentoring program. Um, but yeah, as far as what we do, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's really unique, man. Um, but I mean, if there's any other States or other places that are interested in, you know, maybe getting kind of their own program or organization up and running, I mean, feel free to reach out, ask questions, um, you know, because I, I would love to see this in every state or something like this in every state, whether it's, you know, an independent organization like ourselves, or if it was, is something, you know, sanctioned by the states and game and fish, game, fish and parks or something similar. Yeah. I feel, I feel like I've read something on a parks and wildlife or fishing game agency before about like some degree of mentorship, something, but I think it usually like ends up being maybe like one shooting day and like one hunt in a year, like during a youth season. And that's pretty much like the end of it. Um, nothing as comprehensive as this, I don't think, which is, I really think it, it's like yours is the, the, the standard to set. If you either, they're either modeling after you or it's kind of like, is it really worth like how much is it really worth doing? Like, what are you really accomplishing? Yeah, exactly. No, we've talked about it, you know, before, like one, one deer hunt can be very impactful, but it doesn't, it doesn't really change the life of that kid. It's the, you know, it's the deer hunt and it's, you know, the 12 other times they're getting together throughout the year. Um, you know, for several years, that's, that's where the impact and the change is really seen. That's such an amazing parallel to what Hunt quietly talks about in general. And that, that one, tro- like that one trophy, that one kill, like is not the whole story of hunting. It's not like the end all be all, even though that's what you would think watching TV and social media, it's, it's the lifetime of experiences and failures and and all those things that don't get shared and the and it's the shortcuts behind those trophy kills i think that really kind of undermine like this kind of parallel experience we're talking about here where your kids are getting like a wealth of knowledge and experience and mentorship and kind of insight into this whole new world that you take them out for one hunt they're just that they're not going to get that it's not not the same thing yep exactly and we um you know, we, we ask that our matches, you know, they commit themselves to, to one year in the program. Um, cause we've, I, um, the research shows that, you know, being matched anything less than a year actually has kind of a reverse effect on the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially with kids who maybe, you know, are coming from backgrounds where, you know, there's trauma, abuse, abandonment issues, stuff like that, where they have a mentor come into their life and then that mentor's pulled out too soon. Um, yeah. you know, so, so this is kind of, you know, this is kind of like a long-term thing. Um, and most of our matches, they end up being matched for about four years. Um, you know, and it's, and it's in the four years and it's all those, those meaningful impacts throughout those four years. I mean, that just kind of accumulates to creating a moral, um, ethically responsible hunter, fisher, conservationist, whatever it may be. Um, but just also making a good, happy, successful kid as well. Mm. 
Super interesting. So what kind of, are there, is there common like characteristics or any kind of common thread you see amongst mentors? Like who, who are these people and, and why are they mentoring? Yeah. So yeah, we kind of got away from your original question. I apologize, oh, but um, you know, we kind of have mentors from all different backgrounds, different education levels, career fields, um, you know, and kind of the common denominators, these are all very caring and very selfless people, um, you know, which is, is probably kind of obvious, but every single one of our mentors, I mean, you know, they don't, they don't have to do this, you know, it's a volunteer program, but they want to, um, you know, they love kids, they love hunting, fishing, the outdoors, and they want to see kids in our community be successful. And they also want to see the future of the outdoors, um, kind of be protected if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just very caring, very selfless people. Um, you know, I, I, I might be biased, but I say we have the best mentors in the world, you know, um, but just wonderful people. I mean, from the hunting perspective, I have, I have to agree. Like I, if there's no program that really hits all these marks like this, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who have picked up the kid next door who they know is having a hard time or down the street or something and, and take them out hunting with them all season, whatever, what have you. Like, I'm sure those one-offs exist, but in like a systematic way, like there's no way there's, there's no, like, there's definitely not a, an army of mentors like, like yours. That's, that's hitting like things this hard for sure. I, I mean, I can't imagine if there was, I feel like it, it would be more well-known and all the time I spend on hunting Instagram now, because if I run this hunt quietly account, I feel like I would found it by now. I get sent so much stuff, good and bad, you know, uh, uh, but if it's out there, you know, would definitely love to hear from that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, gosh, cause we have just such a, I mean, diverse group of people. Um, but I would say, you know, you know, if I had to like make a decision, I would say, you know, if you get a gentleman who's been a lifelong hunter, fisherman, who's had kids of his own, you know, maybe they've grown up and started their own families and he's retired and he doesn't have much else to do. Um, those are, those are typically our best mentors mm -hmm. um, because they have the time. Um, and I know we kind of talked about, you know, like we don't have a requirement for how much time you can dedicate but typically the more time you can dedicate the better the outcome you know and if you get an older guy who's retired and just lives for the outdoors and he can take a kid out all the time i'm like those those are usually the best mentors for sure yeah and i mean i have to imagine like being a duck hunter myself if there was a kid in denver that i could pick up on my way out at three o'clock in the morning every saturday and sunday you know that'd be no sweat off my back especially once they learn a little bit and are in the swing of things they it's that's an extra bag of decoys i'm bringing out on my on my walk in you know instead of having to drag it in the sled myself so yeah i i can't imagine like i can understand if you're like a hardcore you know mule deer archery hunter or something like that sharing that experience with a, a kid might be more complicated but you know but there's yeah. so many other part like realms and hunting that could be very easily shared and fishing especially i mean fishing with especially as a spinning rod you know if you're just heading the lake or whatever that's an, that's an easy thing to share with 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 a young guy or young gal yeah absolutely and i tell people like you know you're going out and doing this anyways why not take a kid with you 
Sure. You know, you know, you're going to hunt, you're going to fish, you know, you're going to do these things, you know, see if you can set some time aside to take somebody new. And, you know, um, a lot of our mentors, they, they probably have more fun taking those kids out than going by themselves or going with anybody else. I mean, there's, there is nothing that compares to watching a kid get excited about the outdoors. Oh, it's just, yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, I definitely learned this year big time because in Virginia, I hunted by myself, but I live in Colorado now. Um, and I like instantly made like random friends at the, the trailhead and even like on the river going out to duck hunt. And people were just like, hey, you you know, because I was by myself, just be like, you want to come hunt with us, blah, blah, blah. Made a bunch of friends that way. And I learned that, you know, it's just more like if there's something that feels more rewarding, especially duck hunting with other people. And I have to imagine with some, and I did take out two guys this year. who had never shot a duck before. One guy had never hunted. Well, he'd hunted once. He'd been on like one snow goose hunt. The other guy was like a lifetime deer hunter from, he was from Chicago. Chicago his family's from Wisconsin, I think. Um, but they'd never shot a duck before. And I, I actually, they, so they were friends of a friend. And he was like, hey, do you want to take our buddies? Like, I'm going to be out this weekend. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll go, you know, I'll go with them, make some new friends. I just assumed that they were, they, they had hunted ducks before and they knew what they were doing. And then we get there and they're or in the car ride on the way there at four in the morning. He's like, yeah, man, I'm real excited. I've never shot a duck before. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I didn't realize those mentoring a new hunter today. Oh, man. All right. Well, I've only been hunting since 2018. So this will be interesting. But we shot a couple mallards, a couple widgeon, and everyone was just, you know, I mean, it, it was three of us and we shot four or five ducks. So not like a slam dunk day. It was first day of the November segment of the season here. And it was just like, we hadn't had a front. There weren't really fresh birds. It, was, it wasn't the best day, but we got a few. And man, they were so stoked. And I was just like, oh, that's so, I'm so glad. Like, that's so awesome. It, 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 it takes less when you're at that phase. And it's so much more rewarding and it was such a nice reminder to me of like to like kind of maintain some of that i want to say humility i guess maybe that's not the right word but that you know that the extra level of optimism and appreciation for even like those small amounts of success um which yeah. i don't feel like being a new hunter i their newer hunter i still have but um but man yeah that was that was rewarding that was awesome that's probably Probably my favorite hunt of the year. I shot my first limit ever this year too. So I, I, that's definitely up there too. But I honestly, like that one, there's just something different about it. You know, I just can't put my finger on it, but there's something different about that. Yeah. I mean, sharing sharing an experience with people and getting to watch them, you know, develop this wonder and excitement for it um, for the first time. I mean, it, it just hits different. Um, yeah, I took my mentee fishing year a couple of weeks ago, and it was one of the worst days of fly fishing I've had in a while. And, you know, I was like, oh, man, sorry, buddy. I was like, they're just not, just not biting today. I'm like, this weather's not going good. And he's like, oh, my, he's like, this is the coolest thing ever. He's like, they fight so much harder. He's like, and he, he only caught like two or three fish. But I mean, he was just, I mean, over the top with excitement about those two stalker rainbows that he got <laughs> um, you know and, and kids in our program when they come in i mean they have very very low expectations um last time we surveyed 
um, the kids that this was a number of years ago. I, I want to say it was like three or four years ago, but new kids coming in, 80% of them had never been outside of the city limits. Wow. And we're, dude, we are like in some, some parts of town, like you're maybe 15, 20 minutes away from the national forest. Wow. And so these kids had never been like out in the country. Did you um, say 80%? It was like, yeah, it was like 80%. Wow. That's so you're not only introducing them to like a new a pastime, but you're like introducing them to the world in some respects. Yeah. I inter- so, and so we, we interview the kids, the mentors, it's, it's part of our process. And, you know, one of the questions is, you know, like, what do you really want to do or experience? And I remember this one girl telling me, she's like, I just want to see a lake. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I've never seen a lake before. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. So you have this kid who's like 16 or 17 had never seen a lake before. God, that breaks my heart. You know, and you take that kid, you know, on a 15, 20 minute drive to go see a lake. And it's like a core memory is like unlocked, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you take a kid out goose hunting, you shoot one goose, you know, and you think, oh man, horrible day that kid is never going to forget that. Um, you know, so it's not like, you know, we were taking these kids like on these like trophy elk hunts every year. I mean, it, it's very, I mean, comparatively just very low level stuff, you know, just shooting a doe, catching a fish, you know, seeing the countryside, seeing a mountain, being in the trees, seeing a lake. I mean, to these kids, I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world. That's a remarkable. I can't believe that number 80%. Isn't that wild? I, I didn't believe it when I first read it. Um, and so, you know, my former boss, you know, I asked her, I was like, you know, I'm like, are you sure this is correct? You know, and this is when I kind of first got started in this program. And she was like, you know, a big thing is those socioeconomic barriers. You know, if you don't have a vehicle, you don't have gas, um, we're, we're in a pretty rural part of the country. So public transportation isn't really a huge thing. Like if you don't have the means to get out of town, I mean, like, you know, unless you want to walk, you're not getting out of town. Yeah. You know, and it's a big deal. And it's, you know, stuff that a lot of us, you know, we don't think twice about, but, you know, for a lot of people, that's just the reality. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that's incredible. And it's, man, I mean, it's just so eye-opening. And I feel like we've we've kind of lost sight of this point with Hunt Quietly, but we really need to get back to it because one of the, one of the things that we talked about early on was that the push towards this pay-to-play model of hunting disenfranchises people of, of the lower socioeconomic status more than anybody else. You know, Matt's okay. time. I could, if I wanted to go lease a ranch, like I could. He's got no kids. He's got a good government job. You know, he's not living in an expensive house. He could do that. But that the push towards those mod, that model makes it inaccessible. Even if you, even if mentorships like programs like this in every state exist, you know, that upward mobility, just from a statistical perspective, from, and when you come from a low socioeconomic status, can be very difficult. Um, like you said, there's cyclical problems there. And if we push towards that model, all these kids who who could have this experience and go on to be these, you know, like strong moral hunters who would be 
who and who'd be who are willing to you know put boots on the ground and and know what it means to really give back because somebody gave back to them you exclude them from the model completely and oh, yeah. that's not the kind of i mean that's just not the like the hunting community i'm interested in i i wouldn't want I, if, it, if it was just all rich people i'd have no interest in it. it it's there's something about that you know you can do it yourself you don't need to break out your pocketbook for a crazy amount of money that i think makes hunting what it is and excluding those people is just so antithetical to that and especially to the history of hunting and, and who's who has hunted in american history yeah, absolutely. And like, I don't know, like, I grew up, you know, my my entire family hunted, but this is something my grandpas were talking about, you know, 15, 20 years ago. They're like, you know, they're like the way hunting's going, it's going to be a rich man's game. I mean, this was a long time ago. And I'm like, man, they really kind of hit the nail on the head. But you know, you know, and that's a scary thing, um, is the pay for play model. Um, like you mentioned, um, you know, gosh, I just, there's a lot of people hunting, you know, that have the means, they have the financial resources that probably shouldn't be hunting or they, you know, maybe need to do a little bit of a gut check or heart check. Um, and there's so many people that would be those ethically sound sportsmen that don't have the opportunity, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, it's just crazy world, man. It's a crazy thing to think about. What were your, what were your grandpa's seeing back in the day that made them think that? Oh gosh. Um, so, you know, growing, so I grew up on the East side of the state. So I grew up in the Prairie pothole region. Okay. So like the waterfowl hunting, man, like, um, we did a lot of that growing up, a lot of pheasants. Um, but I think it was what kind of pushed them was there's getting to be more and more like pheasant preserves and pheasant outfitters that were buying ground, leasing up ground, um, putting up putting up these safe zones, um, you know, and so when you do that and you have a lot of this pheasant habitat, you know, that maybe they were hunting since like 1948 or something. Well, now it's owned by a company from out of state who, you know, does pen raised birds and you come in, you can shoot three pheasants for $3,000 or, you know, whatever it is. I think they're starting to see a lot of that and they're like, you know, the way things are going. And I mean, especially now in South Dakota, I mean, pheasant hunting has become almost more of like a tourist attraction than in, in, in the worst possible way, um, you know, than it is, you know, hunting and conservation. Um, so you know, they, they were seeing that and, you know, and they're both big time conservationists. I mean, um, so it was something they were seeing and they were warning me about, but I was just a kid and, you know, I didn't know any better, but hindsight being 2020, I'm like, man, they really hit the nail on the head with that. Mm, yeah. What what do you see in that in that pheasant world going on? Because I know South Dakota has gotten crazy popular with pheasants. Is it just are people really just going to preserves to hunt like birds that are not actually wild and saying they hunt hunt they're hunting South Dakota pheasants? Oh my gosh, there is. I, I'm not gonna. I, I don't want to like quote because I, I know I don't got the numbers right. But I, this was probably a year ago, I was reading about like pheasant preserves in South Dakota and like how many birds are wild versus like pen raised. Um, and it was like alarming, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to throw numbers or facts out there because I don't, I don't know what it is for sure. But yeah, it's become such a popular thing that, I mean, I remember growing up, my dad and I, we had 
like this little section that we would like drive. We kind of like road hunt. Stop mm-hmm. at this place, this place, this place. So we had like a route we would drive every day after school and we'd get our birds. And I was talking to one of my buddies and like looking at Onyx, I'm like, gosh, that route that we used to drive, I'm like, well, like this walk-in's gone. I'm like, that walk-in is gone. And, and walk-in is like our, um, you know, private landowners open up their land to, to hunt. Mm-hmm. Like seem like some of this walk-in's gone and I'm like, oh geez, there's a pheasant outfitter here. There's a pheasant outfitter there. There's a pheasant outfitter over here. So, you know, I haven't been pheasant hunting back east in a long time and there's not much for birds out here, but just, you know, talking to some of my buddies, it's just, it's going the way of preserves and outfitters and it's pushing a lot of local hunters out. So it's, it's wild. It's crazy too that I mean the fe- the pheasant to me is such an interesting bird because it's kind of become like iconic in hunting in some respects, especially in like Minnesota, the Dakotas, Nebraska, mm-hmm. and I mean it is a non-native bird, which makes it like that makes it, it kind of adds like an interesting element to it. But there is such a pen raised like market that seems to be growing and growing. I remember I was listening to a podcast of a pretty well-known dog trainer and he was talking about when he he worked for an outfitter um and they they used to joke that um you know after uh like if they had a bad day hunting and the next day was really good they joke with the clients and say oh yeah they, they must, that front must have pushed in a, a new wave of pheasants <laughs> because really the night before somebody just came out there and just let a whole bunch of them out and that's yeah. what they were doing that day and i don't know i mean that's just I go to some a buddy down the street from me is a big pointing dog guy. Um, and I've got two labs. So we take the dogs to uh he belongs to a preserve, but he's like he says, I refuse to hunt it, but I go after the class puppy classes or like the corporate events or whatever, because there's always birds left. And I just let the dogs go and we train on those birds and just let them point, flush. Do the whole so we just go clean up birds for free essentially he's got the he's got like a reduced membership or something since he doesn't shoot anything and uh and that's that's our bag but man those birds are not the same as a wild bird like especially the chuckers that they put out there i mean half the time they're like if it's been cold the night before they're half dead and they're just trying to get back to mm-hmm. the you see them running back to the the pen a lot of times like oh, that's not the same that bird's literally looking to go back to the cage it was in because it knows that's where it's going to get fed like that's really what you, you want to shoot i don't know yeah, Dog i don't know but yeah it just seems weird to me and i guess i should say this is kind of hypocritical of me but we do two like youth pheasant hunts we put on for our program where we do have pen raised birds brought in um because mm-hmm. west river south dakota is just not pheasant habitat if that makes sense like there's just not pheasants out this way yeah um you know in pheasant hunting wild birds can be a little bit of a difficult challenge especially when you're 12 years old and you've never shot a bird before so for sure i guess we get kind of like getting the puppy started we get the kids started like on some pen raised birds yeah i think there's a time and place for for pen raised birds but i don't think the proliferation of pen raised birds as a part of the hunting industry is really a good thing for us in that respect right yeah it's weird Dog training and, and young kids. That's that's what pen raised birds are meant for, in my opinion. And, and I mean, I guess at the end of the day, if it's really what you want to do, like whatever, but it's not hunting. Like if, if it's, you know, I mean, I've walked around this one property like 20 times now. Like I know it like the back of my hand. 
we can we know like there's probably gonna be a bird there probably bird there it's just different it's 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 not the same thing yeah i was um gosh i was listening to this guy the other day and he was talking about like preferences and hunting um you know and there's people that you know they refuse to hunt with a rifle because using a recurve bow is you know traditional it's a challenge you know and it's what they consider real hunting right Mm -hmm. then there's guys that like to use a rifle to hunt but they like going on backcountry hunts you know where they're spending three to five days in the field and they refuse to shoot anything over bait or anything in a high fence because they don't think it's real hunting yeah but that guy with the recurve might be sitting over a pile of corn but yeah him that's okay because he's hunting recurve but the guy with the rifle you know he's hunting with the rifle but he doesn't think that sitting over bait is real hunting. so i'm just like you know hunting's a weird thing where you know is anybody really right you know you know who what what is real hunting and i don't know just kind of one of those things yeah there's definitely the like baiting especially is like and it's just a such a tough spectrum like it's very hard to find um and i have to imagine with kids that's like a hard subject to broach because maybe they see something online or whatever and then they come back and they say oh but you know i saw this guy do this like online like did it and you know maybe it was somebody shooting a deer off a cell phone trail cam that they they just got the ping and they ran out there and shot it and you know how do you tell like what do you tell that kid about like like what is that yeah exactly um the thing with kids man is they're they're like sponges you know like so if they they see so like they see something online um you know even if it's not ethical or even legal that's like it imprints on them they're like oh this is this is deer hunting and mm-hmm. you know I, it hasn't really come up with my mentees luckily neither of them are very big on on the internets or the social media or youtubes or anything like that thank goodness because i mean there's so much just horrible content out there yeah um but yeah kids man they uh you know monkey see monkey do um adults aren't that much better i don't think (laughs) exactly being honest i think adults fall into that just as much especially with hunting yeah so yeah so i haven't had to have like any difficult conversations i guess in regards to that yet um you know, my, my, I actually have two mentees. I, I go be above and beyond, um, in the mentorship. Um, I'm not switch. I mean, there, there's guys that, I mean, have, have three mentees, but I just, you know, happen to have two mentees and both great kids. We have a lot of fun. That's awesome. So how'd you get started in all this? Oh man, it was God's plan, right? Like just by happenstance that this, this kind of happened. Um, so by by trade, I'm a personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach, and that's what I went to school for, and that's what I did. You know, um, you know, coming out of college, I did it for a number of years, and then when COVID hit, um, and I had a sweet gig here in Rapid City, man, um, doing corporate health and wellness. I mean, sweet gig, great clientele, great company that we were contracting for, incredible boss, incredible leadership. Um, you know, COVID hit and, you know, the company we're contracted for sent everybody to work from home. And, you know, everybody's working from home. Nobody's coming to the onsite, you know, fitness center. So, you know, eventually we ended up losing our jobs. Um, 
And then I ended up moving to a little town called Alliance, Nebraska. And because, I mean, it was the only thing I could find at the time that was, you know, kind of in my my field of study. And I was there for a while and, you know, had great coworkers and was in a great place, but it was not the Black Hills. It wasn't South Dakota. Um, and I was just kind of getting a little bit burned out from being a personal trainer because it's very early mornings, late nights, weekends. You basically, I mean, you're working when other people aren't. And it just kind of got to be draining. I was just like, remember I woke up one day and I, I mean, didn't, I mean, I was living by myself, didn't really have any close friends, family anywhere in the vicinity. And it was like negative 25 degrees, like 30 mile an hour winds. And I was up at four o'clock in the morning to get ready for work. And I was just like, I don't like doing this anymore. And so I just started applying for jobs back here in South Dakota. I was like, I want to get back. I don't care what it is. And then I saw this job and kind of thought it was too good to be true. But I was like, you know, I love working with kids. You know, I love hunting. I love fishing. Um, so I threw my name in the hat and got the job. And here we are two years later. Wow. That's awesome. So this is your full-time gig is running this program. Yep, full-time job, about 60 plus hours a week. But wow. it's a lot of fun. I I love it. I would not I would not trade it for anything. I bet. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really cool. Well, yeah. Christian. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I was gonna get kind of the backstory about, you know, when I came into the program, how it's changed. Hit me, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So originally, um, and for a number of years, um, our program was, was kind of partnered with this other, um, well-known mentoring organization. Um, and so I originally, I got hired on by them to be like a contractor for South Dakota youth hunting adventures. And then about one year ago, that partnership ended and, you know, we were kind of like, just going to be like on our own um not much of a warning and you know my board of directors for south dakota youth hunting adventures is like they're like name your price like whatever you got to do like we want you to continue running this program and so um it was almost like we kind of had to like rebuild it from the ground up because we weren't able to keep like any paperwork records files anything um so, you know, we became our own depend, independent organization um, about one year ago and have been, you know, at the helm um, ever since. And I'm the sole employee, but we're looking at hiring a second person here this year. So, wow. That's awesome. I, I, I imagine that this is not going to be the end of uh, the progression of this either. No. Um, we're actually looking to expand across the state um, within the next year. Um, so Rapid City is kind of like our main hub. And then we also have a chapter in the Northern Hills, which is Spearfish, Bellefouche, Newell. Um, we have a chapter up there. Um, we're going to add a chapter in Wall, South Dakota. So like probably seen the signs for Wall Drug. Um, everybody's seen at least one wall drug sign. So that's the place I'm talking about. We're going to get a chapter started out there in the Badlands and then also get a chapter started in the Southern Hills as well. And then we also have a chapter East River in Mitchell, South Dakota. 
And that is run by Big Friend, Little Friend of the Mitchell area, which is a mentoring organization. And so they run our chapter over there. But we'd like to expand to Sioux Falls, South Dakota and Watertown, South Dakota as well. Very interesting. Yeah, big things on the horizon. And then, I mean, from there, I got to imagine that it starts plunking over to other states. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, the rebranding and stuff with our name it'd probably be too much but if you know if there were there were people out there and the thing is you got to have the right people in the right places to to really make a organization like this function um but yeah if there's other people in other states that want to get something going i mean they can reach out to me anytime um you know i'd be more than happy to help point them in the right direction give them advice whatever whatever i can do but and you know with that being said you know to to mentor a young person in the outdoors you don't have to be a part of an official organization. Um, you know, if you got a neighbor kid, um, a kid you teach in school, family friend, um, if you can get that kid out hunting and fishing, I mean, that, that's basically all we're doing. You're just not doing it in an official capacity, um, but you don't have to. I mean, it's just those little things that that make a huge difference. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I feel like anybody listening to this and hearing these stories and, and the impact has on this kids, if you've got the time, I mean, this is, you know, and you want to do something related to hunting that has a major impact, you know, this is like got to be top of the list. This habitat work and access work are like, to me, would be like the three. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's no shortage of kids out there that want to hunt and fish that, you know, they don't have the resources, the opportunity to do so. Um but you know, they would, they would benefit greatly from it. That's awesome. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to cover Christian? I feel like this has been great. I'm like, I feel like insp- I want to like go run down the street and pluck a kid out of the front yard and be like, all right, you want to go hunting? <laughs> right. Um, gosh, I don't know. There's so much, um, you know, we could cover, but maybe that's going to be, be another podcast further down the road. Who knows? But yeah, yeah if you have any questions, man, I'm pretty much it open book but i mean that's kind of the the gist of the program and what we do no it's been awesome and this has been such like it's it's i feel like i needed to have this conversation too just to like remind myself that's not only about protecting the kind of hunting that i want there to be for myself but like how it benefits other people and people who really need it in in that respect like these kids and and what these kids grow up to be and like the struggles they may have and, and, you know, the, and the fact that means is the economic means is just so different for so many people. Um, is I feel like it's brought me down to earth a little bit, which I, I think I needed. So it's, I, I very much appreciate you sharing that this perspective and, and all this information with me. I, I'm, I feel like, uh, I got, th- I got some thinking to do about this one for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, just puts things in perspective, gets gets all the feelers going. Um, but yeah, it's just I can't I can't emphasize it enough the positive impact that the outdoors and that mentoring has on these young kids. Um, not just thinking about you know what do you want the future of hunting to look like, but what do you want the future of your community to look like? Um, you know, you get kids out hunting and fishing and now they have a reason to 
do well in school. They have a reason to not drink, not do drugs, not get in trouble. Um, you know, and we're really lucky. On, on, I have the sheriff, the county sheriff is on my board of directors and he mentioned the other night, he's like, from a public safety standpoint, he said, this is an extremely important thing that we're doing um, because we're giving kids a positive path in life. Um, and, you know, it's creating a diversion from all those negative things. So, you know, we want the future of hunting and fishing, wild things, wild places to be secure, but also think about, you know, what do you want your schools and your communities to look like as well? Man. I could not have think, thought think of a better way to end it than on that. That, that was really good. Wow. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Well, Christian, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, we definitely, maybe maybe this this fall, once you guys are wrapped up with the busy part of hunting season, we can we can have another chat and talk about all the uh, the fun stuff the kids got to do this fall and see if, see if your mentee got that pronghorn or maybe maybe that buck at least. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling confident. I think, I think he's going to do great. I think, you know, we're going to have, have our best year yet. Um, and we're also, we're going to be filming a lot of what we do. Um, we're going to try to kind of make, I don't know, like a video, I guess, um, of, of some of the different events, some interviews, um, you know, so we have that available. I mean, um, just to, just to show the impact it's having on the kids and show what they're doing, um, and the things they're accomplishing and yeah, hopefully we can even get you out for the banquet next year. Um, be a lot of fun. We have a good time, a lot of stuff to do in the black Hills too. Yeah. Well, my, my upland buddy down the street, I think has a trip plan to South Dakota. So I'll have to let you know if we, uh, if that happens, maybe you can, you guys can bring a couple kids along. They can watch the dogs work. Yeah, they would love that. They would love that. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. We'll definitely have to stay in touch and yeah, definitely hit me up anytime and I'll let you know what, uh, what, what my South Dakota plans look like this year. Awesome. Sounds good. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on here. This was my first podcast. Nice. Um, so I, I don't think I was too nervous. I didn't stumble over my words too much, but nice. yeah, we're just very grateful. And, um, yeah, this was just really awesome. So thank you. Thank you.